0: Listen carefully. Hello, my name is Joseph Friedman with the CRX Podcast, which is a podcast that's directly related to articles in the CRX magazine that comes out quarterly. This is all under the Pharmacy Podcast Network, where I used to have a podcast called The Medical Podcast with Todd Ury, but I'm thrilled to be a part of that. And in addition, uh, I'm a pharmacist with a master's in business and uh, I owned and operated a medical cannabis dispensary that uh, was very unique in Illinois, being the only one that was pharmacy-centric and very proud of that and had a lot of fun with that. It's been kind of surreal at the same time. What I'm trying to do is get the good word out about the benefits of medical cannabis that's fair and balanced uh, for all of you folks. You can find the CRX Podcast on crxmag.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Enjoy listening.
1: You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.
2: Hey there, Farmanizers. Cal here in the editing room. I just wanted to let you all know that Shane, the rest of the Farmanize team, and I have set up our very own Patreon. Now I get it. During times like these, it's just hard to commit any level of money to dedicate to someone's Patreon. We didn't start this podcast to make money off of y'all. But if you really enjoy the fun and educational content we put out on a week-to-week basis, please consider joining. Our tiers are just $1 and $5 a month, and we promise that money will go to nothing else but making this podcast better, and we hope to make it worth your contribution with the content we plan to add on there. For the next two months, we plan to add small episodes called Spotlight Shorts onto the Patreon about tidbits of cool stuff that we just couldn't add to the podcast when initially recording. But that's not all. Our Patreon is going to be the exclusive place for our visual content, including full, uncut videos of our recordings, monthly AMAs host hangouts, behind-the-scenes stuff, and so many other things we have planned. Regardless of whether you commit to the Patreon, we couldn't make this podcast without you. You are the reason we are still going, and we can't thank you enough. If interested, head over to www.patreon.com slash Let's Farm Hello and welcome to Let's Farm Todd Yuri's favorite member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Cal Vandegrift.
3: I'm Shane Garretson. I'm Mickey Ferguson. And I'm Ivan Stewart. And today okay. we'll be discussing the discovery of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. All that and more on Let's Farm and Nice. Did
1: you want him to just say CTE? He can say CTE if you, if you want
3: to. Okay, I don't know if I was supposed to. Unless. Just say CTE, just real quick. Okay, so do it again. Just No, just say CTE. Okay. But I thought since it was like the start, that just we say CTE. The whole just thing. say CTE. Okay. will be fine.
1: Just say CTE. Right now, say
3: CTE. Perfect. Perfect. That's all I (laughs) need.
2: Chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, is a degenerative brain disease that has been found in athletes, military veterans, and other individuals with repetitive brain trauma. Now, I know we were just talking about this. Not too many people here at this table know too much about CTE. Do I have that right? Yes. Just... The other two. I am pretty familiar. You're a hockey fan. You got to know a little bit about CTE. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) CTE has been found in people as young as 17 years old, but onset of symptoms typically don't occur for many years until after the trauma has occurred. CTE was first unofficially described in 1928 by Dr. Harrison Martland, who coined the term punch drunk, After he studied several boxers who had developed similar symptoms. Now these symptoms included aggression, mood swings, short-term memory loss, anxiety, confusion, many more things. Over the next 75 years research was conducted on Punch Drunk Syndrome with only 50 cases ever confirmed. This was until 2005 when a hero of a sports team turned homeless man became the face of a multi-million dollar campaign for head injury research despite immense denial from his employer. Iron Mike Webster was a center for the Pittsburgh Steelers from 1974 to 1988. In over 200 games started, he was part of the offensive line that won four Super Bowls in the 1970s. Throughout his career, he was known for his incredible durability and his fortitude to play no matter what injury he suffered. He would eventually retire as a Pittsburgh Steelers legend in 1990. Even before his retirement, his friends and those close to him knew something wasn't quite right. Often a joyful person in his playing years, Webster retreated to a much more reclusive, angry state of existence after retirement. Webster developed cases of amnesia, dementia, and depression. He lost nearly all of the money he had earned as a Steeler, and divorced his wife and separated himself from his family. He was found to be living in his picture. Up truck, or occasionally in train stations. Even though teammates and Steelers owner Art Rooney begged him to allow them to take care of him, Webster reported that he would have to use a taser every night so that he could sleep. Wait, wait, what? He was tasing himself? He was tasing himself to sleep. Yeah, using that's... electroshock to knock himself out to sleep. Metal. That's that's pretty badass. Not surprisingly, he died from a heart attack in 2002.
3: <laughs> he was just 50 years old. Yeah, I guess that wasn't funny, but I think it was funny. Also. It wasn't funny. supposed to be funny,
1: but that is an interesting piece of information. I mean, I'm, I'm, it's, it's just the bizarreness of it is, yeah. you know, humorous in a bad way. In a bad way, of course. But just the like the extreme measures, using a taser to sleep. I mean,
4: we're going to get into this later. I'm almost certain, Cal, but there have been cases of people with documented CTE that have purposefully committed suicide by gunshot to the heart instead of the head because they want their brains to be researched
2: mm-hmm. for yeah. this. It That's doesn't true. make them any less um, suicidal. I'm or, not going to mention Junior Seau in this one, but he was a linebacker for the San Diego Chargers for a long-time Hall of Famer, but he
3: did that because
2: he wanted his brain studied. But we'll talk about it a
3: little yeah. bit. More. That's interesting. Somebody who have the presence of mind to think about that in the throes of suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. Anyways, after his death, Mike Webster's brain was sent to the Allegheny coroner's office in Pittsburgh,
2: Pennsylvania to be autopsied. This is when Dr. Bennett Amalu, a forensic neuropathologist, was able to investigate. His first incision was into Webster's chest so that he could confirm that a heart attack was the cause of death. This was found to be true. At first, Amalu didn't notice anything unusual with Webster's brain. There was no brain shrinkage, which is a common side effect of Alzheimer's, as well as many other neurological disorders. There were no brain contusions like those found in former boxers due to a condition known as dementia pugilistica, informally known as Punch Drunk Syndrome.
1: Isn't there, have you guys seen the uh, Adam Sandler movie, Punch Drunk Love? No. 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 <laughs> Why would
2: I ever watch an Adam Sandler movie?
1: I mean, he's got a couple of good ones,
3: such as Punch Drunk Love, <laughs> <laughs> Jack and Jill. Yeah, Jack and Jill, five out of five. Right. Is, which one was that? That was the one where he plays like his sister and himself. And, and Al Pacino's in it and it's terrible. It made, made me want to burn down the entirety of Hollywood.
1: <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm pretty extreme. I don't know. When you said Punch Drunk Love, I just think about... I I never said Punch Drunk Love. (laughs) When you said said Punch Drunk Love with Adam Sandler, I was thinking about the movie with Adam Sandler titled Punch Drunk Love. Two Completely different things just somehow came together.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Amalu did notice something odd, however, with Webster's brain. Strange brown and orange specks that were spackled throughout his brain tissue. After microscopic inspection, Amalu concluded that these specks were actually misformed tau proteins. Okay. If you remember from a previous episode of mine on Cottard syndrome, we discussed Alzheimer's disease and a theory regarding the cause of the condition, one of which speculates that the disease can arise from misformed tau proteins accumulating in the brain. Mm-hmm killing brain cells along the way. Dr. Amalu knew he had just discovered something huge and quickly published his findings in the journal Neurosurgery. It was here that Amalu coined the condition as chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Despite his findings being brought to the NFL, executives of the league notoriously denied the CTE reports. In 2005, with the help of Amalu's findings, a Maryland judge found the NFL to owe Mike Webster's family $1.18 million in unpaid disability. Finally, after the death of Chris Henry, An unrelated but relevant 26-year-old former Cincinnati Bengals wide receiver who was found to have CTE at autopsy, the NFL finally recognized CTE and the impact it had on their former players. The NFL has since taken many precautions and enforced new rules in the game to prevent such concussions from occurring. The story of Mike Webster was well known for many fans and people within professional football, but for the majority of the public, this story was still largely unknown. That changed in 2015 when a movie Concussion was released to the world. Dr. Omalu's story was portrayed by Will Smith and showed the obstacles Amalu had to avoid to finally have his findings recognized. Now many youth football organizations have taken stances to prevent children from unnecessary contact and have raised the age where children are allowed to participate in full contact football. The NFL and NFL Players Association have since formed a partnership with the Concussion Legacy Foundation to have former players consider donating their brains to CTE research. Since the Brain Bank's inception, 111 NFL players have donated. Of these, how many do you think have been found to have CTE confirmed? How many did uh, you say were donated? 111.
3: I'd say at least 75. Uh, yeah.
2: I'm going to we'll estimate go that, that it's pretty
3: high. We'll, we'll go with 75.
2: 110. 110, 110 out of, out of 111? Mm-hmm. Who was the one that didn't? The, the kicker? I don't know. That's a good question. Probably, Probably some bench One of the cheerleaders. Random kicker. <laughs> the head coach. Out of those 110, here are three additional stories of tragic NFL player deaths who have since passed. This one's not so tragic. Since y'all aren't a huge football fan, you might not know who this is, but I know him specifically because of my sports broadcasting background. Frank Gifford is one of the NFL's best players to have ever played the game. Gifford played on both offense and defense on a New York Giants team who won five NFL championships in the 1950s and 60s. Gifford continued his life in football after his career ended by analyzing the game of football for millions of people on CBS and ABC's Monday Night Football. Gifford took thousands of hits in his career but one in particular was known to have caused him injury well before his death. A devastating tackle by Eagles Hall of Fame player Chuck Bednarek left Gifford unconscious. The hit was so impactful that Gifford had to spend 10 days in a New York hospital to recover. Jeez. He did not play for two straight seasons after the hit. The hit gave Gifford both a deep brain and spinal concussion, which left him with memory loss, confusion, and tingling in his extremities for the rest of his life.
1: That's insane is one season one year yeah so like one it's season like, is August
2: to February it's 16 games right now it's seven well I just want to know like chronologically August to February is one season
4: wait they changed the number of games
2: and he got hurt in January of January of 60 he didn't play for 61 or 62 okay
3: so two years essentially mm-hmm. so two, two, full single, seasons. two years of disability mm-hmm. essentially so before we continue and feel free to not answer the question if you have it like written out later on in the script is this differentiated strongly from TBI or is traumatic brain injury the general term part of this? Or so is it just a more general you term? You can think of CTE?
2: CTE like a conglomeration of small TBIs okay. that form the chronic traumatic brain damage that you see. One TBI might not give you you know, tau misformations, right? Someone speculated in Mike Webster's case, like I, it wasn't Amalu that said it, but some other doctor said that it was estimated that he suffered the equivalent of twenty-five thousand car crashes in his lifetime oh, to his brain. Lord, yeah, just from constant hits to the you know the head. And back in the '70s and '80s, helmets weren't crap. You know, they had no almost no protection really. They were made of you know moldable plastic, and you could give yourself a concussion just by rattling in your own helmet.
1: You know. So when are you going to talk about the um, the transformation of helmets and how they've gotten better, like how they've progressed?
3: I can. Yeah, okay. I'll talk about it right now if you so, want to. So do we do we know I, I know if like Alzheimer's and dementia and the whole tau protein, we're kind of working on looking into this. But are there any factors that predispose one person to developing like a chronic brain issue from repeated trauma over other people? Genetic factors, environmental factors other than, you know playing like football that's obviously a contributing mm-hmm. factor. That's but. a great question.
2: I think, you know, there's a few studies out there which I'm not going to dive too much in because I don't want to say something that's incorrect, but um, I know that there's been several studies done on Alzheimer's specifically that show that Alzheimer's can be a hereditary disease. Certainly misforming your own tau, you know, like my family for instance has a hereditary for Alzheimer's, right? And I played football for my entire childhood and had we known that it was causing tau misphosphorylation, you know, all the way back then, I probably wouldn't have played football, you know, when I was six, seven years old playing full contact. So, so.
3: is this just straight up shock causing the malformation of a protein, just the, the physical mechanical injury of getting banged up, causing the protein to somehow malform? Mm-hmm. It's just I should have done more research again to to give you the full definition on tau protein how
2: tau proteins get misformed i know there's a cleavage that happens on those proteins like typically a tau protein will get cleaved and form a much bigger protein but um if it gets cleaved in an incorrect way where the other piece of the protein can't connect then it'll be toxic and that's the misformation that i'm talking about that can form those brown and orange speckles yeah
3: okay I don't know if that answered answered your question. But. I mean, we might not even know for sure. That's also totally possible. If anyone is
2: interested more on the actual mechanism, I know I talked about it in the Cotard Syndrome episode several months back, so go and look for it if you're interested. But anyways, yeah, there's, the helmets are much different now. I can talk about it a little bit more, too. But, you know, helmets used to be this soft, moldable plastic. Now there are, you know, pieces in there, like head full headgear inside a helmet. It's not just a... A shallow dome you know that most people would wear yeah they've changed the front of these helmets too because the majority of injuries they've seen have occurred when people lead with the crown of their helmet hmm. meaning the top part of their helmet so they have this piece now that goes inside and it actually shapes the helmet a little bit differently to where it's almost like it's hard to show without actually showing you a helmet but it's like there's a, a small piece that juts out a little bit more than the rest and the rest is concave so it can absorb the the blow a little bit more if you do ever lead with it interesting and now in the nfl that's a penalty if you lead with the crown of your helmet so now they've taken all kinds of you know necessary precautions to eliminate that type of hit in the game because it you know it caused a lot of people injury
4: yeah and for hockey it was a similar sort of story but hockey you can have a lot more traumatic individual injuries but there aren't as many of these chronic like you're always getting hit mm-hmm. like there are some players if you play a defenseman you're going to get hit a lot yeah if you're a star player you're going to get hit a lot but if you're just like a third line guy who's just trying to do his job you're not going to get hit as much mm-hmm. um so i don't think the development of the hockey helmet has gotten to the
2: level that it, the football helmet has no certainly not there's still a lot of things that need to occur in hockey especially with I think face masks might be a necessary eventual add to the hockey mask I mean I'm gonna say it because I'm a
4: little bit biased on this but I don't think full face masks you're ever going to come into the league no maybe not full but like well everyone's required now to have a half visor right it used to be where you could play without a visor and it used to be where you could play without a helmet if you wanted to who's the guy that played the most games you know who I'm talking about um um, played forever. Well, Orr like, was that his name? Bobby Orr played Bobby for a Orr. while. Gordy Howe played for a really long Gordie time. Howell. I think Gordy Howe actually played with his sons. Who was the defender that played forever? Are they both defenders? I think I think you're thinking of Bobby Orr. Bobby Orr.
2: Okay, I think that's who I'm thinking of.
4: Um, but there has been like so much pushback to update safety equipment in hockey. It's sort of a toxic part of that culture, mm. and it's really weird because you see like skates and sticks getting better all the time and stronger. And being able to do more damage to people if you misuse them, that you would think you'd want more protection. But Mm -hmm. hockey's sort of that really hyper-masculine kind of environment where they're like,
2: I'm a tough guy. And the other sport that's never going to change but probably should is is American football's predecessor, rugby. I mean, they play with no pads, no helmet gear, nothing. Yeah. And they they slam each other. So that's a dangerous sport, too. Rugby guys are
3: huge. Yeah. I mean, I think with rugby, at least, as far as I'm familiar with it, which, mind you, is very little, is that a lot of the appeal of it versus football is just is that it's enough. like football, but you really get beaten up mm-hmm. in it. So well, I scrums would, are dangerous. Like, yeah. Those
2: things where they, they pile up on each other, that's dangerous. Seen no broken pads. collarbones, broken shoulder oh, yeah. blades. It's spinal injuries constantly.
3: Because yeah, whenever I hear people talk about rugby, like I said, it seems like the sort of some of the appeal of it is that it's like a human demolition derby. hmm it, sometimes, yeah. yeah. When they do those scrums, it feels like it.
2: But I, I want to go back to your point, too, because it was it was, an, it was a good point that you mentioned that defenders get hit often a lot more in hockey than, say, a striker or whatever. I don't know the other position. A forward. I don't know. <laughs> Forwards, yeah. A wing. Um, but, yeah, NFL players kind of have a similar issue. Mike Webster was a center, and I played center for one season, and I know you get hit on every play as a center. Mm-hmm. That's the first person that gets hit on a football play. So, and and constantly, you're the only player, if you don't know what a center is, by the way, to look at you two. So they're the person that snaps the ball. But in order to do Mm -hmm. that, you kind of have to lower your head. You're not supposed to, but a lot of like collegiate players and, and not trained properly centers will look down.
1: So they're the guy that like squats down in the middle? Yeah, in the middle. And then they like throw the ball back? They throw the ball. Okay.
2: But the problem is if you're looking down at it, like on specialty, this is a lot of football lingo, but on special teams, there's a difference, a differentiator between a center and a long snapper. And the reason I'm telling you this is centers can get hit no matter what play it is. If they're snapping the ball, they can get hit. But if you're a long snapper, you physically can't get hit because they have to snap the ball farther back, which Mm -hmm. means they have to look between their legs to snap the ball. Which means if anyone hit them directly, it would cause a serious issue because, because their head's facing die. right there.
1: What's the safest position to play? Kicker. Me, Kicker. That's what I. No think. doubt. All you have to do is kick the ball. It's starting to become quarterback, but kicker's up there too. See, actually, I think you're wrong. I think the safest position is coach. Cheerleader.
3: That, that's all. <laughs> no, oh, they get injuries too. Yeah, yeah they,
1: can, they can. The drunk fan I'm on the third gonna, row that's screaming go. at the quarterback. I'm just gonna stay home. That's the safest <laughs> position.
4: I'd play goalie if I was taller,
1: but I'm not. Gotta be tall to be a goalie?
4: Yeah. Like, if you're a short goalie, you have very little chance. I think the shortest goalie in the NHL right now is like 5'9. Yeah. That's pretty
2: short. That's pretty average. So, we mentioned offensively the dangers of playing on the offensive side of the ball because you're getting hit a lot. But a lot of people don't necessarily always think about the people giving the hits. There was an instance where you might have, you might know this, or you might not, but you, something similar. In November of 2006, right after these Amalu studies came out, former Eagles defensive back Andre Waters took a few steps out onto his pool deck before killing himself via a 32 Smith & Wesson handgun blast to the head at the age of 44. Now Waters, his nickname was Dirty Waters, was a well-known NFL player who made a name for himself by generating really big hits to wide receivers using the crown of his helmet. Remaining brain tissue was sent to Dr. Amalu for investigation the next morning. Amalu claimed that he was certain that football killed Andre Waters. Waters' brain tissue resembled that of an 85-year-old Alzheimer's patient. Amalu speculated that in 10 to 15 years, he would have been completely incapacitated by the condition. It's just tragic, but that's, I mean, you can think of people, if there's any football fans, like someone like Steve Atwater or Andre Waters or the really big hitters that we always used to idolize, right? We don't really think about them afterwards and what happened after, and it, it's clear that they have some traumatic issues, especially players that played in the late
1: 70s and 80s. Do you Remember the the thing, the collar that they taught us about in um, about like medical medicine, about. the collar that was supposed to like simulate the the hummingbird tongue that wrapped around those vessels, constricting mm-hmm. it and like causing blood to swell in the brain. So there was a famous
2: middle linebacker for the Carolina Panthers who wore that all the time. His name was Luke Keekley Really? Yeah, and really? he had a he started wearing it because he had a really bad concussion. Yeah, and he said it helped him, but then he suffered another concussion. And he, in the prime of his career, decided to quit football because of concussions. Yeah. Which is tragic, too, because he was going to be a Hall
1: of Fame player, a great player. But he so, took health above everything else. I mean, I would, too. Ivan. Um, yes. It's, did you have a question about the collar thing?
3: I mean, I was sitting here kind of wondering about it. So it wraps around the back of your head like like a woodpecker or like a so hummingbird's wood, wood, tongue? Uh,
1: woodpeckers have a, a special tongue that, like, um, yeah, wraps they can constrict wraps like, yeah, it can constrict the vessels to their to their brain to to allow blood to i guess pool in the brain which allows for extra cushioning mm-hmm. for their brain allowing them to you know do the thing where they hit trees which it where also they pack wood. yeah where they peck exactly it's not just for the blood it's also for csf yeah for the cerebrospinal
2: fluid. because um there's another player quarterback of the Chicago Bears. His name was Jim McMahon, and uh, he had a a chronic genetic issue where he didn't have enough cerebral spinal fluid going to his brain at all times from the back of his neck. Interesting. And at one point, he got slammed down by a guy named Charles Martin, and uh, this guy was a big hunk of a man, like 6'6", 380. Like Like, like like me. Maybe not me. Maybe 340. (laughs) He was a big dude. And out of nowhere, he, like, suplexes him to the ground or whatever, pile drives him, totally illegal. And um, we think, and he thinks, since that incident, he has had chronic. He had, he had, he's always had chronic issues, but since then, he has developed light sens- insensitivity. Interesting. And now he has to wear sunglasses, in no matter what room he's in, and for some reason he lives in Arizona, the hottest damn place in the world, and with the brightest sun or
1: whatever. But he has to wear bright dark sunglasses. I mean, all the time. Go to Portland, bro. England yeah so the collar was kind of based on that but it didn't work oh yeah. it's so it kind of BSing. It was yeah. based on the, the woodpecker tongue
3: that's that's pretty cool though even just as a point of bird physiology because i knew about the tongue and the like extra skull cushioning that a woodpecker has because otherwise their brains would be seriously just mush on the right. inside of their heads.
4: and you'll hear similar stories in hockey to
3: uh that carolina player
4: who suffered repeated concussions. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the biggest name that I can think of off the top of my head was Paul Correa. He used to play for the Anaheim Mighty Ducks. He famously got really badly hit in a playoff game, I think, Mm -hmm. by Scott Stevens. And if you don't know who Scott Stevens is, he's about 6'5", 260 pounds. Imagine him going about 25 to 30 miles an hour at you, hitting you directly in the head. I
1: would disintegrate. Yeah, he There'd be nothing
4: left of me. He crumpled on the ice, and this was before concussion protocol. They stretchered him off the ice. He comes back in the third period and wins the game winning goal for the Anaheim Ducks. Um, but like several years later he had to quit because of repeated right. concussion symptoms.
2: If you want to see bad sports injuries, if you just have a thing for watching bad sports injuries, hockey is the place you want to see. I want to avoid it. What's the the Clint um Whoa, uh, Malarchuk! Malarchuk! Malarchuk. Oh. i can't
4: watch that video oh god
2: mm. he someone's skate hit his throat and it sliced it open he was a goalie and, and it, it was, was just blades of blood. and blood was spewing out of his neck on the on it, the ice it, it was, was like
4: uncomfortable amounts of blood it was like probably two to three quarts he
1: it was five, almost a
3: gallon but it's pretty bad that's yeah. some serious bad luck yeah no doubt yeah so what what is the like if you suspect that someone has sustained a, a serious head injury in the context of football or hockey what what does the does the league you see, you mentioned a protocol do these mm-hmm. organizations do they have like a specific protocol for minimizing the uh, I guess long term like what if somebody gets right. smashed in the head on the field what do they do immediately afterwards so do you as just soon call as them they off get rest or so as soon as they get hit and they
2: say that it's typically on the player or you know if it's obvious enough they, the doctors will come and check them out if it was a really big hit and everyone was like oh you know doctors right there you know um but they have this pop-up tent that goes up now on football fields for injuries and typically they'll take them back there they didn't used to have these tents and you could see what they were doing but it's basically like a police officer like um in all the tests they use for drunkenness you know can you follow my pen okay. with your eyes uh, can you walk in a straight line just to make sure you're with it. They're asking major questions, you know, who's the president, what year is it, that type of thing. It was actually interesting, another personal experience. I know this isn't supposed to be all about me, but I suffered a concussion playing tennis of all the sports. Okay. I, I've told both of them this, but um, I was in concussion protocol and I couldn't remember what the president was. I couldn't remember what year it was, you know, that stuff.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, getting – yeah, okay. And that's that's like – standard. they do the same and kind then, of thing in like hockey? Then know, it's
2: typically like two weeks and reevaluate. You it's, know. They take a long
4: time. And hockey, it's, a, it's treated a little bit differently. So if someone gets hit really badly and they suspect a concussion – most of the time, the guys are good enough that they will literally walk, like, skate off the mm-hmm. ice and then walk to the locker room. Right, yeah. Typically, you're not going to get carted off for a concussion. Yeah, and then the, the team doctors will take you to, to a dark room and be like, hey, are you light sensitive? Right. Is this sound
2: like making it painful? The weird like, thing and is, and this I'm sorry to interrupt, but there's a weird thing with concussions that I guess only someone with concussions could describe, but you don't notice that you've had a concussion immediately. You feel normal, like you're fine, and you're kind of—I don't know. For me, I was kind of pissed off, like I'm fine. Let me go. And then an hour later, I'm like, okay, all this, all this stuff, you know. I mean, to a degree, yes, um,
4: but they'll generally keep them back there, and if they're really insistent, or if it's like a really big game, they might come back out. But right. generally, they the NHL shouldn't be. The NHL's has gotten a lot better at mm-hmm. taking concussions seriously.
2: Kind of something tragic, real quick about Luke Keekley who I mentioned already. Um, when he suffered that second major concussion, he was like he was on the field for like ten minutes. It, it, concussions trigger all sorts of weird, like emotional things and all mm. that. So he took off his helmet and he was just visibly crying on the field, and it's just uncontrollable. He couldn't he couldn't help it. He was just crying, you know, sobbing. Um, let's talk about some the final player I wanted to talk about so we can finish up. You don't even really have to have watched football to know who this is, so y'all might know who this is. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. Uh, ask me what I'm drinking. What are you drinking, Shane?
1: This is an Aspire Energy Drink, raspberry Akai flavor.
2: Oh, what is that?
1: Oh, man, it is so good. It's a healthy energy, natural caffeine, no calories, no sugars, no carbs, just lightly sparkling and refreshing flavor and energy.
2: Huh, that's got to have at least 300 calories in it, doesn't it?
1: No way, man, zero calories.
2: Jeez, do you think they sponsor our show?
1: Not yet. Call me back, Aspire. I love you. We could be so beautiful together.
2: Former Patriots tight end Aaron Hernandez.
3: Yeah, I watched a documentary about him like uh, murdering mm-hmm. someone. I yeah. Think. Aaron
2: Hernandez was in the prime of his career in 2000, 2012, coming off a Pro Bowl performance with the Patriots, when he was arrested by police and charged with the murder of Odin Lloyd, a semi professional linebacker who was Hernandez's sister's fiance. He was sentenced to life in prison in 2013 for the murder of Lloyd and was later charged with a double homicide, which he would have been he would be acquitted of in, uh, in 2017. Despite being in the middle of an appeal of the initial 2013 ruling of the murder, a correctional officer found at 3 a.m. on April 19th, 2017, Hernandez hanging from a bed sheet in his cell. Upon examination by Ann McKee, a researcher at Boston University, she's like a Malu, she's a pretty big um, a CTE uh, researcher, she said, quote, We have never seen anything like this in any of our 468 brains, except in some that were 20 years or more older. McKee discovered brain atrophy, damage to the frontal lobe, and large sections of black spots of tau proteins in Hernandez's brain. Jeez. Upon diagnosis, the Hernandez family filed a $20 million lawsuit against the NFL and the New England Patriots for negligence. It has since been dropped. Sufferers of CTE come in various shapes and sizes, but due to the nature of full contact sports, former players tend to suffer more frequently than most. Since the Concussion Legacy Foundation's inception, more than 1,000 brains have been sent for the study. Nearly two-thirds of all these brains sent have resulted in posthumous diagnosis of CTE. Because studies are still ongoing, I don't really know how to end today's episode, other than to say if you're a parent of a child who is interested in playing football, I just ask that you please be careful. From personal experience, I played football throughout my childhood right in the middle of these investigations, and I still suffered several concussions and many joint injuries that leave me pain to this day. I only say that just to just have caution when you're introducing your son or daughter to, to football and other contact sports. That's
1: fair. I think that's an appropriate does, warning.
3: Does this particular syndrome show visible symptoms or alterations in any other area of the body or physiology besides the brain? Yeah, like um, I mentioned, I mentioned tingliness.
2: Sometimes tardive dyskinesia can develop. Wow. Yeah. It just- yeah, it's pretty bad.
4: Mm-hmm. There's also been cases where they suspected CT, but they haven't died yet um, of people that have developed similar symptoms, to OCD or PCSD, or major depressive disorder, like a lot of different mental illnesses um, or diagnoses from CTE,
2: they In, suspect. Involuntary movements is a typical um, extra
3: one that you see not specifically related to brain issues. You know, like nerve and brain damage can be so unpredictable from mm-hmm. what exactly happens from person to person. Are there mm-hmm. any like efficacious treatments for this? Like, could you give somebody drugs designed to help with say dementia or Alzheimer's for this? Could antidepressants help Is there any documented evidence of any kind of treatment for it? Well, it's the same issue that we have with Alzheimer's, right? We have Aricept
2: and, and, and drugs that don't necessarily, um, cure alzheimer's but more like slow the progression yeah of it. keep it from getting super bad super right. quick once you have the equivalent of twenty-five thousand brain car crashes occurring in your brain it's kind of hard to
3: reverse that damage that's been done so it's a problem of you don't notice it until it's too bad to really do anything about it well the thing is too that tau cleavage is permanent
2: that toxin just doesn't go away there's no way to clear it, it doesn't cross blood-brain barrier and it's already in your brain ah. so there's no way to get it out and there's no there's no drug that we know that can that can dissolve tau protein because tau is also a very important part for memory. So if you take a drug, it's you know it's a it's a weird fine balance. You know we'd have to have a drug that would target specifically that it that very wrong cleavage. Problem is there's it gets cleaved in millions of different ways that can be incorrect and it's just impossible, not impossible but very improbable to find one that can do that.
3: I mean, usually there's only one right way to do things, but there's bazillions of wrong ways to do them. So Mm -hmm. I guess the targeting would just be really, really complex. Right. Yeah. That worries me for my
2: kids personally. Like, There's no no way if I had a boy who was seven years old
3: today, if I had a seven-year-old, I would let them play contact football. So is there any, I I guess I'm trying to think about a way to so are there i know that this is kind of a recent phenomenon as far as acknowledgement are there does this have any larger effect on people who like played football during certain deve- or any i guess got any of these during certain developmental stages is yeah it?
2: ongoing studies have to be continued there are people that did not play in the nfl that have cte yeah you know? certainly. and people that didn't play collegiate football that have cte development um it's just every single day, and and the thing was too. I'll I'll mention this real quick. So there was a drill that we used to run in football. I was eight years old in running this drill. It's called the Oklahoma drill. Oklahoma now is notorious in Pop Warner football and other youth sports for not. You, it's banned. You cannot run Oklahoma, but used to we used to run it all the time. What happens is, someone has a football. You're both laying down on the ground, helmet to helmet, right? Okay. You know, like facing opposite directions helmet to helmet. One person has the football, the other person has is just a defender. And the goal is basically to get up as fast as you can and hit the other person to where either the def- the ball handler goes down or you truck the defender, which is full helmet contact on every single hit. And that used to be run 3 times a week, you know, for an hour. So, yeah. there's a lot more there's a lot more precautions now. The minimum age to starting contact football has, has been raised since I started. I started playing contact football when I was seven years old. Now I think it's it's nine or ten. That could, still could be raised to me. I wouldn't want them to play until 12, 13, if at all.
3: Yeah, I remember when at my middle school, or maybe this was a county rule, you couldn't play until you were in at least seventh grade, I seem mm-hmm. to recall. Yeah, and that's typically the start. They won't let sixth graders, like middle schools won't let
2: sixth graders play full contact football. That's just kind of how it is. But Pop Warner is a completely different thing. That's for, you know, I was second grade and I was playing Pop Warner football. What know? does that mean exactly? Pop Warner? Yeah. Pop Warner was, a, was a, a man that started youth football, kind of like James Naismith was for YMCA basketball. He was He started youth football it's a person pop
3: warner okay i don't know if that was like a kind of football or if that was it basically has become because i know i've heard that name before somewhere but i just didn't i had no idea what at this was point that. it's just a brand you know, pop warner's been dead for 50 years or whatever but
2: the youth leagues live on
3: he's probably playing golf with
2: elvis in florida probably yeah that's where he is right now <laughs> <laughs> saw him the other day him and napoleon still down there in florida Hey, you made it! Thanks for listening to the show. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to get updates on when we post new content. Also, go check out our website at ww.letzfarmanize.com for blog content and old episodes. Finally, a special thanks to Kelly Kerr for creating the music for Let's Farmanize.